is ADD or ADHD something that is affecting your family? Today, we're going to be getting a fresh perspective on this that may just surprise you. Welcome everyone to the Dorenda Wilson podcast. I'm Dorenda, wife to one, mom to eight, nana to 10, and 28-year veteran homeschooling mom. I'm also the author of three books, The Unhurried Homeschooler, a simple, mercifully short book on homeschooling, The Four-Hour School Day, How You and Your Kids Can Thrive in the Homeschool Life, and Unhurried Grace for a Mom's Heart, 31 Days in God's Word. So all three of those books are available on Amazon. They are also available at my website, DorendaWilson.com. And the four-hour school day is available at any of your favorite booksellers in addition to the two places that I just mentioned. So if you're interested in receiving a free devotional that goes with the four-hour school day, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes and uh, and you'll be subscribing to my once a month email newsletter, but you'll get that devotional as a free gift. So I'll leave a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Also, this podcast has gone from 60,000 downloads to 115 in just the last several months. And um, I am just so grateful. I just, I'm humbled and I'm thankful for all of you who are listening and sharing with your friends. If you have a minute to leave a rating or review, that can be super helpful in getting the podcast in front of moms who've never seen it before. So if you've been encouraged by this podcast, please go and do that if you have a minute or two, but I know you're busy moms. So if you don't, that's just fine too. I'm just glad you're here. I also want to share a great math resource. Um, I'm always talking about CTC math, and I'm going to share a testimonial from one of our listeners. She said, I took a leap of faith and tried CTC math for the kids. I heard you talk about it on your podcast. Our lives are so much better with this incredible program. My kids beg to do their math lessons first, and it's freed me up to work with the other kids more intentionally because I'm not struggling to teach concepts to frustrated children. It is a wonder. I was planning to pay for a math tutor to help, and now I don't have to search for one. So thank you. I've already told all my homeschool mom friends. So moms, I encourage you, if you're interested or have a need for a new math curriculum, please check out ctcmath.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. I want to tell you about an amazing summer leadership camp that my friends at XL College host. It's no secret that now, more than ever before, it's vital for our teens to learn to think critically and live wisely as they navigate the world and become who God made them to be. My friends at XL College are passionate about helping young leaders learn to discover God's truth, discern wisely, and live wholeheartedly and have fun doing it. If the teenager in your home wants to grow in their faith while building lifelong friendships and going on the adventure of a lifetime, send them to Excel College's Summer Leadership Camp. It's a transformative journey where they'll go on thrilling adventures like camping, rock climbing, and whitewater rafting and receive expert training and certifications in categories from CPR to wilderness first aid. Apply now at thexlcamp.org and select Drenda Wilson for $100 off the camp. I'll leave a link in the show notes. All right, on to today's topic, you guys. I'm really excited, but I wanted to give a little bit of background just um, in my own life. Um, when I was a young mom, uh, I happened to read a book called How to Raise a Healthy Child in Spite of Your Doctor by Dr. Robert Mendelson. I don't even know how I got a hold of that book, um, but it 
it was a great read and it really changed and shifted um, my perspective on how much faith I was going to put in doctors. Um, It really led me down that road of doing my own research and looking for alternatives and uh, praying, asking the Lord for wisdom, all of that, not just blindly trusting my doctor. Um, One of the quotes from the book, uh, Dr. Robert Mendelson said this, medicine today has become a religion and the doctors are the priests of that religion, very powerful priests. They can tell you to insert the command there and you usually do it. And I thought that was so interesting because what he was essentially saying, and he went on to talk about more, was that we often put our faith in doctors and those in the medical field, and it can easily be um, kind of just like misguided and undeserved faith. When you're just believing somebody, um, it it is faith. If you're just believing and not having any kind of questions or anything like that. So I am honored today to have Dr. Roger McFillin here on the podcast to share a fresh perspective on ADD and ADHD. So I first heard Dr. Dr. McFillin on Ali Stuckey's podcast, Relatable. So the topic he was talking about in the first episode I listened to was anxiety and depression. I was just completely enthralled. He said so many things that made so much sense and and things that I've thought but never had affirmation. Um, He did another two episodes with her on ADD and ADHD and again, shared such wisdom and insight. So I realized that many families are homeschooling because their child struggles with focus in the traditional classroom. And some of us chose to homeschool for other reasons, but we also found out that we have children who have trouble focusing. So I really wanted to drill down on this topic in the podcast. So I got on my computer and I emailed Dr. McFillin and we just had a great conversation about faith and church. And though we differ in some areas of faith, I really respect the work that he does and wanted to connect you Uh, to him as an incredibly valuable resource. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background on him, and then we're going to dive into this topic. You guys are going to love this. So Dr. McFillin is a clinical psychologist, board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology, and host of the popular Radically Genuine podcast. He is an outspoken critic of the psychiatric diagnostic system, prescription drug culture, and misrepresentations of science that drive harmful mental health care. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and specializes in the treatment of post-traumatic stress, anxiety, mood, and eating disorders in adolescents and adults. Additionally, he provides consultation and training for parents of kids with emotional and behavioral problems. He's been featured as an expert on popular podcasts and national media outlets, including One American News Network, Time Magazine, and the Relatable Podcast with Allie Beth Stuckey. Dr. McFillin, welcome. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, thank you, Duranda. It's an honor to be with you and your audience today. I'm really excited for uh, you to get... Uh, talking to talking about this, but I want to kind of start way back at the beginning because, you know, we're all very familiar with ADD, ADHD diagnosis, but it hasn't always been like that. So where did the diagnosis of ADD and ADHD originate? Well, I think we have to kind of go back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, when we began to see a, a shift in how the medical community was discussing what the ideal 
child would look like at that particular time. Um, mm-hmm. The model child, according to many of the experts in that period, were kind of needed to embody the new industrial age. So you were seeing uh, rapid changes in the workforce in the Western culture. So uh, to, to be a factory worker, to be someone who can contribute to the new economy, the government, the United States, other Western societies needed children to have regulated behavior and obedience to authority. These were necessary traits to become a successful employee. Uh, Childhood became a critical period for learning restraint and developing proper social identity. So from learning to be able to follow rules and sustain attention on boring tasks, they would the belief was that it would make a better employee. Uh, The public school system arose from similar ideas with the teacher acting as an authority figure and the school day running on a factory bell system with only very short breaks. The concept of ADHD didn't really enter our lexicon until 1980, but the idea of, uh, of children having problem behaviors or moral defects were mentioned in the literature in 1902. A British pediatrician, Sir George Frederick, still reported on a group of children who had a difficult time maintaining focus and obedience to authority. And he called it an abnormal defect of moral control. And although these children did uh, have these, these children were of typical intelligence. They struggled and were outside of the bounds of normality and being able to follow rules. You're going to, there's a, there's a long history of ADHD as a diagnosis being tied to the pharmaceutical industry. And if we have to go mm-hmm. back to 1935, the pharmaceutical company SmithKline and French, which later became GlaxoSmithKline, acquired the amphetamine benzedrine sulfate, and they were providing the free drug supply to any interested doctor and commissions targeted studies to explore lucrative possibilities for this drug as having an adrenaline-like effect and being able to improve Mm -hmm. productivity. I got in the hands of a psychiatrist in 1937 by the name of Charles Bradley. He administered benzedrine sulfate to uh, young kids who were having behavioral disorders at the Emma Pendleton Bradley Home for Children. And you see this history of experimentation on developing brains and on young children who were in uh, in like the foster care system or at at that time they were... um, They were orphans, orphanage homes, or kids with behavioral problems. And one of the things that he observed through that experimentation is that by administering this psychostimulant, that this form of amphetamine, that children became subdued and and obedient, at least a large percentage of them. Not all of them. Uh, Others had like a a distinct drive to accomplish as much as possible, uh, similar to what you would see if someone was dependent on on methamphetamines or amphetamines. And uh, a lot of these studies that he was doing at the, at the time, he just saw a, a, a child who had high activity, high energy or problems following rules, just becoming much more lethargic. And obviously that brings a lot of attention to 
the pharmaceutical industry in, in ways that they can begin to market their their drugs, and, and they did. Ritalin was the first one. Methyl, methamphetamine. It's a it's a stim it's a stimulant that was approved by the FDA in 1955 for narcolepsy, chronic fatigue, depression, or cognitive problems in the elderly. So you can look back just to the history of how we were viewing child, childhood behavior in the industrial age as a precursor to the identification of a psychiatric disorder named ADHD. ADHD didn't enter into the DSM, which is the Diagnostical Diagnostic Statistical Manual, until 1980. Uh, previous publications, there was something by the name of hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. But the uh, American Psychiatric Association identified it as attention deficit disorder, ADD, back in 1980. And the interesting thing is if you look back historically, these diagnoses were very, very rare. So you're talking about the most severe of problem behavior, and it was mostly a rule out diagnosis. Rule out meaning if a kid was having behavioral problems, you'd have to rule out other possible conditions, often in terms of abuse or neglect or other cognitive mm -hmm. issues, learning disabilities, maybe nutrition, nutrition, uh, nutrition deficits, sleep mm -hmm. problems, or so forth. But that's really changed over the past 30 to 40 years as we see that diagnosis much more frequently uh, applied. It, it eventually transitioned to attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, which is ADHD, putting it all into one. And we've seen just a dramatic rise in the diagnosis of ADHD uh, throughout the 1990s, which ar arises around the same time where the pharmaceutical companies were we're paying academics as thought leaders to do a lot of research and, and promote this new diagnosis that had uh, genetic origins and they had a, a drug, a stimulant drug that would improve the lives of kids who were hyperactive and uh, had difficulties paying attention. Mm, wow. Wow. I, I, I noticed um a little bit, a few minutes ago, you mentioned there was like this rule out thing where you could, you had to rule out other things first before the diagnosis. And uh, that's something that I think is, is really interesting because, you know, we had five boys and we decided to homeschool from day one. So we had two girls first and then the four boys um, and then a girl and then a boy. So having so many boys in the household, um, the one thing that I learned over the years was I looked at them and I thought, you know, they would have been, I think they would have been labeled or diagnosed with either ADD or ADHD. Um, but because their learning environment was so conducive to who they were and how they were wired, um, especially as boys, they have thrived. And so there's, you know, I think a lot of moms out there, especially with little boys who are super active, um, there's always this, this little thought in the back of their mind, well, you know, maybe they need medication, you know, or whatever. And I think it can be a real um, deterrent from seeking out other ways to make things work for our kids. Um, so I, I love that, that rule out thing. That was a, that was actually a good idea, but that's not really the case anymore, is it? Unfortunately, I mean, it, it still should be. I think clinicians mm -hmm. who are really investigative and um, are, you know, are, are concerned that the ADHD label doesn't have any explanatory value. And that's my major problem with the diagnosis. Sometimes mm -hmm. on social media or other podcasts that I've done, 
uh, gotten myself into trouble because I say there's no such thing as ADHD. But what I mean by that, and I'm very clear, is that there's no discrete medical illness called ADHD. There's no biological markers. You can't go into your pediatrician and get an MRI or a blood test and confirm the diagnosis. ADHD is just a constellation of symptoms but without any cause. So attention problems exist. And yes, some people skew towards being more hyperactive or having more energy than the average person. Predominantly, that is young boys. Mm -hmm. But the idea that that is something that is a disorder is a modern invention. And so basically what we're saying is because a kid may struggle in one environment it's almost always the school environment to focus on boring or novel tasks. The question is, does that mean that person has an inherent brain disorder or is there something wrong with them? And that's why it's important to understand historical context that when you examine the history of this, that ADHD as a diagnosis was essentially developed to sell stimulants. And it's still the case today that that diagnosis is promoted in order to sell drugs. I, I, you know, one of the things that is certainly not a coincidence is when we started increasing the rate of stimulant prescriptions for children as well as SSRIs, we started to see a dramatic rise in other mental health concerns. So when you combine stimulants or you combine SSRIs, uh, one of the effects of that is, is mania. Um, and so you saw the rise of bipolar disorder being diagnosed throughout the 90s and early 2000s when it seems very clear that that's a, that's a drug effect. So yes, there's a percentage of kids who are going to take a, a psychostimulant like an Adderall, which is an amphetamine, or methylphetamate, which is, a, which is Ritalin, and they can really subdue and, and focus their behavior for a period of time. But what it is, it's a Schedule II drug. It means that it is highly addictive. And like anything, the brain adapts. So taking more, mm-hmm. taking the drug, you're going to require more and more of it in order to yield the same results. And so the question is always from an ethical one, is what are the long-term effects of providing stimulant drugs for any kid that is struggling with behavior? Mm-hmm. And if we overuse this identification of ADHD, then we are, are we moving away from identifying the actual causes that could lead a kid to have emotional or behavioral problems? And that's what I've seen, that trend in the field. It's very rare as a clinical psychologist for me to evaluate someone who didn't obtain the label or diagnosis of ADHD. It's that prevalent now. And mm-hmm. so it's very clear. It's just, it's an in vogue diagnosis to sell more stimulant drugs. And because stimulant drugs can have a powerful effect initially, can even create euphoria for a large percentage of people. It's a performing enhancing drug. It can improve your ability to perform short term. It is really a desired drug, but always the question ethically is at what cost? Mm-hmm. And I think we have really good science that suggests that it is damaging uh, long-term for the use of those drugs. And we have to be very, very mindful about how we frivolously apply that label to all different types of kids, regardless of the reasons why they may be struggling. Right, right. So um, just to to clarify, in your opinion, what is ADD, ADHD? What, what, do you have a definition of that? Well, I, I can kind of give you the 
the clinical definition, and it's it's somebody who has functional Im- impairment in their ability to uh, to focus and sustain attention on tasks uh, in two separate environments, and and or have a degree of hyperactivity that also creates functional impairment. And so the problem with that, as you might expect, is it's very subjective. Mm-hmm. So what would uh, what one person might uh, observe to be functional impairment in their ability to stay focused or to uh, or to or to be able to sit still is often you know dependent upon the tolerance of that particular environment. So as mm-hmm. I think many of your uh, your listening audience probably well knows, is the environment is is critically important. So if you have a, a, a young boy who wants to be outside and needs to move their body and is very active and works with their hands and uh, might be athletic. And you, and you take that young boy and you put them inside and you ask them to sit for long extended period of time on, on boring tasks that they, that Mm -hmm. don't really grasp the attention of their mind. Does that mean it's a disorder? I mean, that could achieve the label of ADHD because there's a, there's functional impairment that exists in that school environment. But ethically, does that mean that person is disordered when you can take them out of that environment and put them in another environment and they may thrive? And I think that's like what's most important is we have this restricted idea of what is normal and that has at least been partially shaped by by that early 20th century in the industrial age and how Mm -hmm. we developed our public school systems. And the unfortunate thing right now is that the large majority of ADHD diagnoses occur as a result of identification within the public school system. Mm. Yeah, I heard you talking about this on one of your podcasts. Um, I think you were you were saying how teachers have become the, di- the the ones who give the diagnosis, but they're not qualified to make that diagnosis. Um, I just thought that was so interesting because that has really that really has happened. I mean, it's to the point where some kids aren't allowed to come back to school until they get the drug, and it's just it's unbelievable. I. It, it's it's crazy, but I I'm wondering. Uh, I'm sure there's a mom out there listening. Maybe her child is on some sort of um, medication for ADD, ADHD. So I, I'm curious to know um, if you think they're ever helpful, or there are just a thousand other ways to go about this. Yeah. First, let me clarify. Teachers can't provide the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's usually the majority of time right now, it is the diagnosis is made by a pediatrician. Psychologists obviously are probably more qualified to provide that diagnosis through more extensive testing and observation over time. But the overwhelming majority of diagnoses are made by the pediatrician. As you know, a pediatrician is going to only make a diagnosis based off a symptom checklist. The checklist is given to teachers who are going to rate the child And if the teacher believes that that child is hyperactive or struggling to sustain attention, then the the pediatrician is going to assign that label. So that is how it is. uh, That's how it's provided the majority of the time. Yeah, I think there's this, this, yeah, and I, I realize a teacher cannot give an official diagnosis, but they're the ones who sort of start the domino thing going on. And, and a lot of times, um, from what I understand, they're pretty 
insistent that many times they they don't want the child back in the classroom until that's that has been handled. Um, yes, they and, can be. Yes. And I think that 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 is something that is is terribly wrong as well. So, um, did you have more you wanted to share on that? <laughs> no, I, I mean I I totally agree. I think we see an overstepping of of boundaries in our medical mm-hmm. profession. Um, and our and our teaching profession in, in that realm. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of teachers who just you know prefer prefer a classroom of very obedient kids. It's a much easier right. job for them to teach. Sure. And sure. so, I mean, it's a, again, it's a very restricted idea of of normal. And and when you can assign a label of ADHD, um, like in in a in a third grade year but then the teacher in fourth grade year doesn't ob- observe that type of behavior that just kind of speaks to the subjectivity of this and how mm-hmm. pseudoscientific the diagnosis can be mm-hmm. there's also really good research that uh, a, a large percentage of people who assign or who had obtained that diagnosis in the school system also have younger birthdays. So it could just be an issue of maturity. Right, and, right. Uh, you know, so there's so many variables that we have to be able to pay attention to. Now to your other question, is there ever a, a circumstance and situation in which the, uh, the use of a, of a stimulant drug could be, uh, could be effective or could be helpful? And, and to me, like the the answer to that question always is it, it depends. So it, it's a cost benefit analysis, in my opinion. There's risks. There's risk to taking a stimulant drug, but in my line of work, there's obviously some extreme cases. We've seen uh, we've seen kids who um, are so they might they might have obtained an autism diagnosis or have developmental disabilities or maybe attachment related problems due to. Uh, neglect or, or abuse. And, you know, when I wouldn't assign the label of ADHD to those, those kids, because obviously I think the, the problem is related to other factors, but when, when it is so difficult for somebody to sit still in the most extreme of circumstances, and you might be able to take a psychiatric drug or a stimulant that allows that kid to sit still and stay focused for a period of time, maybe the the benefits outweigh the cost in those situations. In my opinion, that is such a rare occurrence, mm-hmm. and that is not what we are seeing generally in, in, in practice. It's In fact, it's the opposite. We're seeing those drugs prescribed so easily and obtained mm-hmm. so easily. Uh, there's some data that, that says in some communities, more than 20% of kids are taking a, a stimulant drug. Obviously, that does not in any way support statistically those who would skew to the extremes. And, you know, we are medicating or we're drugging just variations of normal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in your opinion, how should ADD and ADHD or that type of behavior be treated? Yeah, so again, remember, I don't really believe that there is such a thing as ADHD, so I'll answer it in the in the manner in which I think that you were asking the question. Mm-hmm. If a kid is experiencing behavioral problems or difficulty focusing, how do we then approach that case? Right, so right. again, I think that starts with a very thorough investigation over time. And I'm a behavioral psychologist, and what that would mean is I would have to examine and understand that kid's uh, unique strengths and their own deficits. So it could Mm -hmm. include uh, a full battery of 
uh, cognitive evaluation and testing to see where the strengths and weaknesses apply. But we also have to consider the context in which the, the behavior develops. Uh, so there could be many reasons why a kid may have behavioral problems or attentional problems. I'll just, you know, I'll just throw out a, a number of them. Sleep deprivation, nutrient def, uh, deprivation, um, poor parenting, mm-hmm. uh, screen dependence or screen mm-hmm. addiction, uh, a worrier uh, with anxiety-related problems, uh, lack of lack of structure, uh, poor environmental reactions to the the natural inclinations, blessings, and talents of each individual kid. So there's so many reasons why someone might have those attentional and behavioral problems. And so only through comprehensive investigation can we understand when those problems exist, under mm-hmm. what conditions, with who, and how does the environment react and respond. Mm-hmm. And so when you develop a treatment plan, you'd have to first highlight the the problems. There could be problems around excessive screen time or phone time. There could be poor diet, poor sleep hygiene. Uh, The parents can be struggling to help develop appropriate discipline and structure. Uh, There could be too much time that's that's allotted to, uh, to, to a kid to do things that are very enjoyable, like playing video games at the expense of being able to sit still and complete homework or, or other chores. Mm-hmm. And other times it's just about finding the balance that exists between who a kid is naturally versus what we're asking them to do. And then we have to build up tolerance to be able to sit still for an extended period of time. One of the things that I'm, I'm most worried about right now in American society is the degree of screen dependence that has mm-hmm. now exists for, for young kids. And many parents are, are, are struggling economically and there's a lot of parenting through screens, iPads, um, television, uh, just being on the cell phone. And that is certainly having its effect in on developing brains. Our brains are very adaptable. So, um, you know, when you put something in front of a kid that is so stimulating, it can then be difficult to be able to transition into more boring or novel tasks. And I think that's a that's a skill that has to be built up. And that's why I really do recommend for a lot of parents is that you limit screen time, push off giving your kids a cell phone as late mm-hmm. as possible. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics even recommends that kids the age two to 12, not have more than an hour of screen time due to the Mm -hmm. detrimental effects. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of potential problems that could be contributing to why a a kid's behavior exists and we have to do the investigative work. Right, right. That's so good. I know for us, um, the the one kind of routine or rhythm that worked for us so well was we we spent the morning doing chores. We were focused on chores and keeping the house in order. And then we went and we had breakfast, a few more chores, and then some some schoolwork, some book work and all that. But we were always, especially kindergarten through eighth grade, when they were in high school, we went a little longer, but kindergarten to eighth grade, we really were done. We were done by noon. And the younger the child was, the less time they spent. My kindergartners might have spent zero to 30 minutes on any kind of book work. And it just sort of incrementally grew from there as they were, as I could see that they were ready for it. And um, that was a wonderful plan that happened to work really well for us because our kids always, I also gave them free time in the afternoon to be creative. This wasn't screen time. This was 
outside building things, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, We called it sort of, I guess it would be like self-directed learning. Um, So we'd have lunch and have a little rest time. And then they would have that time every, pretty much every afternoon for a couple of hours. And all of my boys have said what motivated them to get to sit still and get the work done in the morning was that they knew they were going to have that time in the afternoon. And so, you know, knowing your kids, knowing how to motivate them and knowing really what they need. Um, I knew that those boys did not need to be sitting there for hours on end. And um, they have the best memories from that time that they had um, every afternoon for years and years. But again, I, I feel like the moms who are listening, so many of them know their kids really well. And I always encourage them if they don't feel like they know them well. I feel like we have to be students of our kids, ongoing students of our kids, because they're always growing and changing and developmentally, they're in different places at different times. And so I think observance by parents and just understanding kind of what's normal at, at these ages um, is, is super, super helpful. And, uh, and just giving yourself and your kids the freedom to to sort of flex your schedule accordingly. Um, that's one of the benefits of homeschooling, the many benefits of homeschooling. So um, yeah, I love that. I love the, the list you gave was so good. The, 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 you know, this, the simple routine I think is so important. Kids knowing what to expect each day, what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And, you know, it, it's just, it's kind of, I don't know, I look at it and I think it's really just good old fashioned. So much of it is good old fashioned parenting. And, um, and we can avoid so many things by, by striving to be, you know, just good parents. I think um, that that is something that I know my listeners uh, do strive for. And so I'm glad that they're getting this information today and this sort of encouragement uh, to keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, I love some of those recommendations, some of the things that you've done. And in fact, I just want to kind of reflect back on some of those things because what you're doing is developmentally appropriate. We, if we can go back into the American public school system, No Child Left Behind, which was during the Bush era of uh, George Bush during the uh, 2000s, uh, there was a focus on test scores. And so they, in public schools, they eliminated recess with in order mm-hmm. to focus on school, on, on building up test scores. And you just moved away from what was developmentally appropriate for so many kids. Kids don't have to be in school all day long trying to sustain attention sitting in a desk. It's It just calls it's calls out behavioral problems. Right. And so what you did is that you developed structure, but then you reinforced them being able to focus on incomplete uh, work by being rewarded and being able to go outside and move their bodies. And there was a, there was a different definition of learning. So creativity is something that I think is absolutely critical. Uh, a lot of kids get diagnosed with ADHD just because they're daydreamers. Right. Daydreamers themselves could be, you know, in their own minds, being able to, you know, create things uh, that 
later become manifest into the world by, you know, through that imagination. So like things like critical thinking, creativity, imaginative play, all those things are held out of the public school system, not to mention just our hours in the public school system have led uh, children to be chronically sleep deprived. Mm. And so there's so many problems with the way that American society uh, employs the public education system that actually does harm. And when you are a homeschooler, you know, you can actually, it's very preventative against ADHD type behavior Mm -hmm. because you're actually, you're actually allowing them to learn in novel experimental ways, develop critical thinking, move their bodies, uh, have a structure, have a plan. They can learn uh, the manner in which they need to go about their day in order to do some things that are enjoyable. And that in itself prevents that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's funny because even... they sometimes even the boys especially needed they needed breaks between subjects even so if they if they had done math and they were feeling a little restless I would just you know ask him are you doing fine do you want to move to the next subject or do you need to get out and move around and most of the time they'd want to get out and move around they'd jump on the trampoline or take a quick ride on their bikes I had to make sure I set the timer because I would forget about them And I think sometimes they counted on that. And before I knew it, it was all with eight kids, you know, you can easily forget that one is outside riding their bike. And so uh, anyway, so that that was always kind of a big joke, you know, get mom to, to forget that she sent us outside, but <laughs> set that timer, bring them in and they'd go to the next thing. And, you know, it was one of those, those things though, where I, I, I knew I needed to do this for my kids because I love them and I knew them and I knew this is what they needed. But there was this part of me that was nervous. I was nervous, like, is this going to be enough? Because I'm not, you know, I know I'm not doing as much supposedly as, you know, they might be doing in a classroom. Although, you know, I've, I, I knew in the back of my mind that there's such a small fraction of time in a classroom where learning is actually happening just because of all the interruptions and all the variables in the equation. Um, and home, it can happen so much more effectively and efficiently. And, and kids are really good at self-teaching if they're in the right environment where they can just be creative and do the things that they want to do. And so having that time for them every day, um, it was just a blast too. having them come in and tell me all the things they were doing and building and creating. And um, it, it, so it was fun as a mom to see that too, but it really required a commitment to say, you know, these kids are the most important thing. So if it doesn't look like this over here, that's okay. We're going to go with this. They're thriving. You know, it's, it's looking at your kids and saying, is what we're doing breathing life into them or is it sucking the life out of them? You know, and there's some things, you know, we just have to do because it's, it's life and there's, you know, that little bit of, yeah, you need to push yourself and get this done. But I think 80% of it should be enjoyable. Um, And so that was kind of what we went with. And uh, I look at our boys now and uh, girls too. They're they're smart. They're they're still learning. They love learning. Um, they love getting new information all the time. They're constantly going back and forth amongst each other with interesting information and so um, projects that they're doing, things like that. So it's really fun to see that uh, in, now as a mom who's you know kind of passed for the most part, past the homeschooling years, but. 
Yeah, I, I just love, I love everything you're sharing. So you've talked some about how the school system makes the problem worse. Um, are there other things you want to share on that? And also, how can homeschooling our kids make a difference? I think you've kind of touched on that a little bit, but if you have more to share on that, we'd love to hear it. Sure. I, I spent some time in the public schools. When I was getting my doctoral program, I was working as a, a school counselor in, in middle school. And I actually also, um, you know, did some internships and other things in the school system. So I got to observe firsthand about how the educational environment could shape problem behavior. One of the things you're, you're referring to is the individualized nature of education. When you have a class of 20 kids or more, you're not really getting individualized education. And I do think kids have a natural love of learning. They just mm -hmm. learn in different ways, just, mm -hmm. just as we're all so diverse. You know, we have construction workers and engineers and artists and teachers and scientists. Our natural inclinations are, you know, vary so much. And uh, what works for one kid in one environment is not going to work in the same environment. And so the public school systems limit the ability to individualize and educate individualized education, and it can become quite punitive because it tends to focus on following rules, rote memory skills, obedience to authority. And as we well know, there's a, there's a large percentage of kids just are not going to thrive in that type of environment. And that's why, you know, I'm speaking out against some of these pseudoscientific labels like ADHD, because the kids who don't fit into that typical environment uh, tend to, to stand out and become labeled as disordered or as a, as a behavioral problem. And I used to find that just um, for those type of kids, and I used to work most with them as a school counselor at that time, is patience and kindness and, um, you know, positive attention and identifying their strengths, how easily it would be to get them to be able to get things done when they felt you know, cared for by school personnel. And, you know, that's the, you know, that's the challenge when we send our kids off into public schools. You have to be able to trust that that, that other adult has your kid's best interest in mind um, and really cares about them and also respects the values of the family. And so, the, you know, the, when it comes to the homeschooling education, those are things you don't have to worry about. Those right. are things that are under your control in being able to identify who your kid is. No, you're not, no one's going to love your kid more than, than you as a parent mm -hmm. and that love and that, and that patience and trying to foster that love of learning is so important. There's just so many kids who've just viewed learning as punitive mm -hmm. and school is a place where they go to and, and they don't feel good about themselves. Uh, they actually feel worse about themselves. And for someone who's a mental health expert like myself, those are, that's what I'm concerned about are the ramifications of that. The other thing is, which, which I've mentioned is so important is, is sleep and, and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so the school day starts way too early for mm -hmm. Our, for, the, for our kids, you know, kids need to be able to get the necessary sleep that is recommended for their developmental age. That's important on concentration, on focus, uh, on mood. And I cannot underestimate that. And high quality food is, is right. another important factor. Right. Those school lunches are 
processed food. You eat them. It's high sugary food. It's certainly not a well-balanced nutritional meal as, as they like to suggest. So kids going mm-hmm. to, into school and eat that type of food or have the chocolate milk or the high sugar, it makes it very difficult for them to stay focused uh, in a school environment. And then obviously they don't have the necessary time to be able to move their bodies in a way mm-hmm. that is actually very necessary for their, for their health. So there's just so many valuable aspects from the homeschooling environment. And until the American school system adapts, I think we're going to continue to see the trajectory that we do, which is this higher rates of of anxiety, higher rates of depression, uh, obesity, chronic health-related problems, poor school performance when we when we talk about us in comparison to other developed nations. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a real major problem mm-hmm. in American mm-hmm. society right now. It really is. You know, I actually just did a series on um, and uh, four separate epi- episodes, the physical benefits of homeschooling, the mental benefits, the emotional benefits, and the spiritual benefits. Because I think that as homeschooling moms, sometimes we get so caught up in the, you know, just the fray of choosing curriculum and what kind of style are we going to, to how are we going to, what kind of learning approach are we going to take with our kids? And, you know, who needs what and all of that, that we forget that the things you mentioned, those very basic things that that are uh, homeschooling affords an opportunity to take advantage of the physical activity, the good nourishing food, the sleep. I shared on that episode about uh, how much sleep, you know, at different ages that kids really need. And I know for my kids, you know, sometimes they they had a bad night, you know, maybe they woke up for some reason and couldn't go back to sleep. And I had the option to say, hey, go ahead and sleep longer or take a, a rest this afternoon or whatever. I was able to help nurture them um, the whole child, you know, not just their education, but physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually so that they grew up, you know, as productive, whole, healthy adults who, um, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but but definitely thriving, um, especially when you look around at the culture. These, these kids are thriving in their 20s and 30s, and they know what is important and what isn't. They know rest is important. They know play is important. They they have a really strong work ethic. And so, you know, all of those things are just such a, a beautiful, can be such a beautiful advantage of homeschooling if we will uh, pay attention to it and take advantage of it and, and use it um, for the benefit of our families. So what are the most important and practical steps that parents can take to help their kids or themselves in taking back this area of their health? Because I'm sure there's a parent listening here who says, I think I'm the one that has trouble focusing. Um, Can you share some ideas, some direction with us? Sure. And when we talk about practical steps, there's a number of interventions that appear to have a a, a really high success rate in being able to manage behavior. you know, a, a few of them, you know, most of them I mentioned already. I think the first one is limiting the the amount of screen time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, often what we're seeing is that, you know, parents are really sometimes just struggling themselves to be able to to manage one or many more more kids with a lot of the challenges that exist for them. And it's so easy for kids just to get caught up in in and screens and using phones and video games. So really limiting that is really important. Uh, you as a you as a, a parent have a 
a primary responsibility in being able to help train self-regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts at, you know, as young as age, age two. Um, and, and we do that, we can do that in a loving, compassionate way, but making sure that there are clear limits and consequences that are set up in your, in your home. So even like things, you know, as simple as having like a, a timeout uh, mm-hmm. chair to, to be able to remove a two-year-old, to be able to sit and self-regulate when they're not responsive to the, the parents' authority in their homes. I, I actually really do believe parental authority is just so Im- important and that becomes mm-hmm. instilled in a loving home very, very early. Mm-hmm. So having, having that, that structure, the parental authority in which, in which kids can, can be responsive and be able to learn self-regulation skills by responding to their environment, limiting screen time, structure is so critically important. I've seen it with my kids. I raised three kids. And when they have a number of things to be able to do, um, whether it's extracurricular activities, balancing their academics, their spiritual life, um, and being able to contribute to the home, creativity and free play, making sure that, uh, you know, their days are, are structured and, and pre- predictable. So having the, the ability to be able to be focusing their attention into their life and into a life of, of engaging with others, adequate mm-hmm. social time, adequate exercise, creativity, whether it's playing sports, music, all those things and being able to have that as part of childhood, I think is just so critical to to healthy development. You know, we've already mentioned the, the value and importance of, of sleep. The other thing is I just, and this is like really important and you could probably do an entire podcast on this is that the American food system, the industrial food system in American society, there are, uh, you know, a number of, of problems with, with processed food and things that are like promoted to us as mm-hmm. nutritious. And we know more and more, we're learning more and more about the impact of processed food, pesticides on our, our wheat crops, uh, nutrient deficiencies, and how they can affect mood and behavior. Uh, you know, one of those is like Glyphosate, which is mm-hmm. banned in a lot of countries, but we're spraying it on our wheat crops. And so a lot of wheat products, non-organic foods. I think I've you know read studies that like more than 50% of Americans are magnesium deficient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And some of the core kind of symptoms of magnesium deficiency can present themselves like other psychiatric conditions like anxiety mm-hmm. and ADHD. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain dyes that are put in our food, which are banned in other countries like red dyes and, and so forth, are also can create cognitive deficits. So I, I, you mm-hmm. know, I just can't underscore the value and importance of nutrient-dense whole foods, right. Right. Um, mostly organic, and how that plays a role in child development. Mm-hmm. You're so right. Those are all things that I grew to in a deeper understanding of over the years. It was kind of a passion for me. And so um, it always still learning now, but definitely I feel like my kids are are pretty well equipped that way. But it's, it's, there is definitely a problem, <laughs> a big problem with the, with the food industry. And I think it really for me, it was go back to simplicity, go back to fruits, vegetables, healthy meats, and just stay there and, and don't veer off into the, the snacks. And, you know, 
there are some there's some decent snacks out there now, but you know, make fruit the snack. You know, I used to put out a veggie tray um, for the kids, and I would just if I put it in front of them and said I want you to eat this, they they probably wouldn't eat it, but I'd stick it out on the table, and I wouldn't say anything, and that thing would be gone by the end of the day. You know, <laughs> just as they're walking by, they're grabbing a cucumber, this, that, and the other thing. Just put out what was available to them what I wanted to be available to them. That was their snack, nuts, whatever. And, uh, and that worked really well. So you learn some, you learn those tricks, you know, and tips along the way. But yeah, I think parents really, it's really great to equip yourself with that knowledge and that wisdom. And there's so much information out there. It's, it can be overwhelming, but just pray about it and just start one step at a time. You know, um, can't eat the whole elephant in one sitting, but we can take one bite at a time. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's really, really good. Very good uh, advice, wisdom, counsel. Really appreciate that. So uh, one thing, one last thing I just wanted to touch on really quickly is you talked about, you didn't use this word, but you know, when kids are doing schoolwork and when they're engaged in projects and different things, um, the word meaningful kept coming to mind. You know, when we give them meaningful work and we give them, you know, meaningful schoolwork. Now, sometimes you know, there's a topic where you're like, okay, I, I know you don't understand, uh, you know, why you have to do algebra or whatever. Um, it's a thinking thing or whatever. We can, we can give them reasons that it's meaningful, but there's a point at which it's just not anymore. And so like for some of my kids, they, I didn't make them go through algebra and geometry and all that. They were off in going other directions and I just settled it and went, it's okay. We, we're, we don't have to do that. They had all the basics down. Now, when you're sitting down with your second grader and you're working on addition, subtraction, you can easily tell them why it's important as we go to the grocery store and we point out, you know, that we need to know how to add in order to figure out how much we're going to have to pay and, you know, learning things um, on a very practical, but when that's the thing with kids, if it is, uh, if there's a connection there for them somehow, that is when they're going to learn. And so I think as parents, um, I just think keeping that word meaningful in the forefront of your mind as you're walking with your kids through the day, different things that you're doing together, um, explain why it's meaningful. You know, I, I love that so many homeschooling parents will take their kids to volunteer for different things. and um, But it all comes back around to uh, giving them meaningful work and, and and reasons to do the things that they're doing. And I think when that happens, um, that is a, that is a, a time when they grow so confident and they realize that they're needed in this world. You know, they, they, they have something valuable to bring to the table. And I think that's another thing we can do as homeschooling parents throughout the day is just be encouraging our kids that what they have to offer is valuable, you know? And, uh, so I, I, as you can tell, I'm passionate about homeschooling, passionate about nurturing kids. And I'm just so incredibly grateful that you have, uh, you were willing to come on today. So thank you for sharing um, everything that you have. And I would love for you to let my audience know how they can connect with you, how they can listen to your podcast, because I've been listening myself and it's been fantastic and I'd highly recommend it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being on today. As you can see, what am I, my passion, my passion right now is, is trying to educate the public more on uh, the limitations of these psychiatric labels, diagnoses, and, and mental health uh, treatments that have become so much part of our popular culture. You know, mm -hmm. We're seeing 
through every available statistic that uh, our culture is worsening for uh, you know a number of, of, of reasons, one of them being which is how we kind of conceptualize our, our life. I think one of the things that I just love about your wisdom that you just shared is is you're cultivating a, a, a passion within your, your kids to create a life of value, purpose, and meaning. And mm-hmm. I think there is in so many ways an, an emptiness, a spiritual emptiness that exists in our secular culture. Um, and, and the way that we're labeling problems is is problematic. So I speak mm-hmm. to this on the Radically Genuine podcast, which you can download on any of your major podcast apps. You can also go to drmcfillin.com. You can sign up for my weekly Substack, which I'm writing about these issues. I'm also just giving very practical information. Some of it's around research. We A, a good example of this is that the FDA recently approved the drug Lexapro for childhood anxiety, despite mm-hmm. the fact there was a six-fold increase in suicidality from the drug group compared to the placebo group. Wow. And out of three of the four outcome measures, they showed no dis- no difference between drug and placebo. So the allopathic medical environment, which we're trying to medicalize everything about the human experience and then try to sell a drug through it, I think is creating indelible harm. Uh, I also have a, um, I'm pretty active on social media, Twitter, which is now X. You can follow me at Dr. McFillin. Uh, We've recently started a YouTube channel that's at Radically Genuine. And I'm on Instagram at Radically Genuine. Great. Well, I'll have you uh, give me all of those links and we will include them in the show notes to make sure that parents can connect with you. Um, Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a voice of reason in a kind of crazy culture in this area. (laughs) So thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. Lord, I just thank you for this time. I thank you for the wisdom, the experience that has been shared, the insight. Lord, I pray that as every parent is listening, Lord, that you would just clarify to their hearts and minds um, the things that they need to focus on. Lord, I thank you that uh, you have created us. You, We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are our designer. Um, you are our creator. And we know that you can show us and give us wisdom how to walk out a healthier lifestyle, how to um, address focus issues uh, from a different angle, Lord, with ourselves or with our kids. And so we just thank you for providing this great information. Thank you for Dr. McFillin. Thank you for this time together. And uh, we just thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 